This morning we are back in our Just God series. Uh, we're going through the book of Habakkuk. And just to you, catch you up to speed, if you're just joining us, I wanted to remind you a little bit of the background of what's going on. So you'll remember that Israel and Judah had split after the reign of King Solomon. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, we find that Assyria rose to power, and, and after that, Israel uh, was taken into exile in about 722 B.C., uh, by the time you get to 701 BC, we find Assyria at the gates of Judah, about to take over Judah, when God miraculously rescued them, destroying Assyria and sending them running for safety. Now, at that point, we find that Habakkuk most likely, I believe in this book, prophesied during the reign of one of three kings of Judah. Okay, so uh, the first is where some place it during the days of Manasseh, that uh, wicked king. Uh, I told you if there was a poster boy for wicked kings of Judah, uh, this guy would be the guy. Uh, he reigned for 45 years from 687 to 642 BC. And he led Israel, I mean Judah, into all kinds of abominations like child sacrifice, temple prostitution, and idolatry. This was a, a godless man. Now, towards the end, there was a little bit of reform, uh, but the, the sort of, uh, I would say, uh, die was set, or the cast or die was set, such that we knew that the future of Judah was not going to be good. Uh, the second potential uh, placing of this book, uh, others have placed it during the prophecy uh, in the early days of King Josiah. You'll remember that he served as king for 30 years years after his father was quickly assassinated upon taking the throne. And uh, he led the nation in pervasive reforms. Uh, in fact, uh, he led them uh, towards uh, ridding uh, the temples of idolatry and that sort of thing. And then they found the book of the law, and that led to even more reforms. But I'm siding, as I said last week, with the majority who placed this book during the reign of Josiah's son, King Jehoiakim. Now, King Jehoiakim was a king who led uh, in a way that was not godly. Uh, he was proud, not like his father, Josiah. In fact, he is famous for wanting his people to build him a house of cedar that was greater than his father's house, uh, showing his pride and the way that he tried to exalt himself. And he did all of this on the backs of his own people. So an unexpected shift in power from Assyria to the Chaldeans as the new superpower was taking place during Jehoiakim's reign. But Habakkuk has just complained in verses 1 to 4, as we saw last week, as a righteous sufferer. And, and he's, he's complaining on behalf of the remnant, the, the righteous Jews, who are looking all around them, and all they see is injustice, and they don't understand why God is not responding with help. They are seeking to obey God, but all they see around them is violence. Jews are mistreating Jews and ignoring God's law, his Torah. Now the text leads us to believe that Habakkuk has been crying out to God in lament again and again, asking how long God is going to tolerate all of the evil all around them and why he's allowing it. And no answer has come. See, Habakkuk sees the pervasive, unchecked infidelity of God's people, but he can't see his invisible God amidst the chaos. Have you ever felt like that? You're looking all around you, and it looks like everything's getting kind of crazy from your window, and you're wondering, where is God in all of this? It seems that the invisible God is more invisible today than he was yesterday. I think all of us have felt like Habakkuk. In fact, some of you are probably 
devastated this morning over a presidential election that didn't go your way. Uh, maybe some of you have shed tears, had restless nights because of us, because of it. Uh, many people, uh, you'll notice on the news, were boarding up their windows of their businesses and homes, getting ready for what they feared would be riots in response to the election. Why? Because that's been kind of normal in our experience as of late. Add to that a pandemic with cases still rising, new heights uh, to new heights, and nearly a year later, uh, it seems like we just haven't seen an end in sight of this pandemic. Many of you uh, have experienced some kind of financial hardship as a result of what's happened. Uh, Some of you have lost jobs or you've had your pay cut back. But just to be clear as we start this message, some have asked me, did you choose Habakkuk on the day after election day so that you could get at these issues? No, I did not. It just, the Lord works his ways in mysterious ways. But we need to be reminded as we look at Habakkuk that the United States of America is not God's elect people like Judah were. See, we we can relate to them in looking out of our window and seeing chaos all around and crying like Habakkuk, God, we see injustice and we want your justice to rain down. We can cry out, how long, O Lord? Why must we endure this? When will you save us and vindicate your name? God, where are you in all of this? And if you haven't cried out to God in these ways, taking God's side against sin, you should, but catch this. God finally answers Habakkuk in verses 5 to 11. He speaks to him and gives him a response to his many, many prayers. God responds to Habakkuk's parochial problems, those localized problems, by raising his gaze up to his global solution. And that global solution that he has that's coming, it is going to both comfort him and confound him. God is bringing an answer, and he is excited to have an answer. God is present, he is active, and yet we're going to find that this problem that he brings a solution to seems to bring another problem. Well, this morning, if you're following along, uh, what you're going to notice is, is that he has asked God, why do you look idly at wrong in verses, four, in verses 1 to 4? Why is it that you are looking, God, idly at the wrong all around us? And he imagines God, I, I believe in this scene, uh, my picture is, that he's kind of visioning God in this moment as chaos is going all around him in the yard. He's sitting back and he's thinking to himself, God, it's almost like you're just sitting on your front porch in a, I don't know, a rocking chair with a big glass of, of tea and you're just kind of watching and you're chilling and you're just going, oh, that's nice, but you're not doing anything. When are you going to get up and respond? What we find here this morning is that God has already been responding in a way that he did not see. In fact, this is his big idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. He says, I'm raising up an unjust people to bring about my just purposes. I'm already raising up an unjust people to bring about my just purposes. Now, you'll notice first that God says, and you'll have to hang with me with the Southern here. He says, y'all look and wonder. Y'all look and wonder in verse 5. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice that the language in verse 5 is shifting from the voice of Habakkuk, who was speaking to God, to hear the voice of God responding back to Habakkuk's lament. But also, you, you need to notice that God not only responds to Habakkuk, but to all of Judah. And in fact, If you look closely, you'll notice that beginning in verse 5, it's a shift to these second-person plural imperatives. 
And most of you just like lost me. So let me just bring in the southern uh, aspect of this. Uh, what this should say in the English, if this was like the southern version, would be y'all look, y'all see. Not just you singular, but, but you all. In other words, he's speaking to the group of Judah, the people. And here God responds to Habakkuk's unrelenting prayers for justice, where he is asked why God has tolerated evil for so long and how God would respond. Well, here in verse 5, God says this. Look with me. Verse 5 again. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Now, everything about this verse demands attention. You'll notice there that God says twice, look, see. And then uh, twice, he says, be astounded, be astounded, be astounded and wonder. He, he wants to grab them and, and get their attention. I mean, you would think that God just speaking would be enough, but he wants them to pay special attention to the wondrous things that he's about to do. And did you catch what he wants them to pay attention to? Their problem is local in Judah, but he says, I want you to look to the nations. Now, God's answer to a local problem of injustice here is global. Now, Judah lost sight of God when God recaptured their attention. And here it, it feels like it's almost as though a camera is on Judah and he's panning out from them to the universal reign where God exists eternally as the king. And it's in that realm of his universal reign that he is working on a much larger playing field than they had imagined or been looking at. You'll notice that if you look back at verse 3, Habakkuk had lamented that God looked literally idle amidst injustice. But God here says, watch, I'm already doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Now the irony I think is thick, because just think about this. He's telling them something, and he says, you would not believe if I told you, but he just told us. So is he expecting us not to believe? Well, here at first blush, verse 5 might sound hopeful to you. In fact, this is one of those Bible verses that you may find on a book on foreign missions, like the one that I just read uh, yesterday. Uh, I just read uh, this quote. I'm going to put it up here on, on the slides, but it's a book I read yesterday. It's some book, not going to call out the specific book, by some author, not going to name the author, on page 17 of this book. And, and this is the quote that was written in this book about missions. Uh, this chapter begins by inviting people to pray for missions in this way. Father, do wonders for your bride before all nations. Sounds pretty positive, right? Father, do wonders for your, your bride, your, your glorious bride, before all nations. I mean, don't you just get warm inside with that? You're like, where'd, you, where'd this author get that? And you just follow down to the bottom of the page. And it says that this prayer is actually a paraphrase from Habakkuk 1.5. And you're thinking, I don't know if this is the way to treat a bride. And, and, and that seems, I think, in context to interpret wonders in a particular way. It seems like a wonderful, like a good thing. Now, you may even have seen pictures like 
this next one on Etsy or Pinterest of this verse that you would put up on your wall, a kind of picture that has really cute font. Look at the nations and watch and be what? You can't even see it on the screen. It's like utterly amazed, right? And then a little heart at the end. And that's sweet and make you feel so good inside. Even the colors and the font look happy. Now I can see how people would, when they get to this verse, expect it to be a positive verse, a hopeful verse, a happy verse with little hearts at the end. In fact, Kenneth Barker, uh, in his commentary, argues that even the structure of this text expects a hopeful message coming after it. He, he writes the expected form of verses 5 to 11 uh, would be an oracle of salvation answering the preceding lament. And normally a priest or a cult prophet would deliver such an oracle to the one offering the lament. But here, God himself responds. And where you expect a message of salvation and justice, Judah hears a response that creates wonder or astonishment, not in a, what seems to be a good way, but a terrifying way. Just look at what he says in verses 6 in our second point. He says, I'm raising up Babylon to bring justice to Judah. Raising up Babylon to bring justice to Judah. Uh, you'll notice in verse 6, there's that little four that begins it. And, and that's indicating that he is giving an explanation of God's work in the nations. Let me explain what I mean by this, this work that I'm already doing in the nations. Now let me ask you, as we read this verse, does wonder sound like something that is wonderful in a good way? Here's what he says, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now you'll remember that God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt through signs and wonders. And this looks like the opposite. Rather than calling the nations to look and wonder, to be terrorized, it is God's people, his very own people, who will see and wonder and be terrified. See, God's judgment on Judah will demonstrate God's justice to the nations. Now, the instrument of God's justice in Judah and the nations, it's going to be the Chaldeans. Now, this is striking when you consider a couple of factors. Uh, first, the, the prophet complains about the injustice that he sees locally. But God's response is to tell all of Judah to look globally. See, he says, look amongst the nations. Now that word for nations is a Hebrew word, goyim. It means peoples. And usually it speaks of people who are non-Hebrew people. And he's saying, I want you to look to all these non-Hebrew people, the surrounding nations. What's fascinating is these nations, they did not believe in the one true God. Uh, they did not believe in his law. They usually believed in many gods, parochial gods that were bound up by geographic boundaries. So this God lives at this zip code, and as long as you're in this zip code, he's the one that you have to appease. But if you go out of town, then you're going to have to figure out that God and appease him. Sometimes they had territories over certain topics like fertility, harvest, or even parties. There was a party God. See, Judah had a narrow parochial view of Yahweh and interpreted his patience with injustice as absence. I'm just wondering if you've ever had that sense in your life. You've been praying for something for a really long time. 
You've been looking to God, you've been lamenting, you've been asking for help, and you haven't gotten the response that you've asked for, and it's felt like God was absent in the midst of that. Have y'all ever had that kind of experience where you continue to cry out to God, you continue not to get a response, and you begin to see maybe even in your own life there are ways in which you are being unjust or sinful, you're disobeying God, and you're wondering if maybe it's because God's not there and God does not see, and maybe you've even become more bold in your sin. Have you ever done that in your life? You sinned a little bit, didn't seem like there were great consequences, so you did it again and then maybe sinned more, and before you knew it, sin had more of a grip on you than you had on it. Anybody been there before? But you thought God didn't see, or maybe you thought that it, it wasn't a big deal since Jesus didn't come down and deal with it. And maybe that's you this morning, trapped in your sin. Not only do you see injustice, but you've begun to take part in injustice yourself, sinning against God, against Christ. And you're wondering if maybe God's just not really taking account, or maybe Jesus doesn't even care. But don't forget God's word to us. Ecclesiastes 12.4 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In Romans 2, 4-6, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, turning away from sin, turning away from injustice? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each according to his own works. Or what about 1 Corinthians 5.10? We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may get, be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And there's moments where we feel like God is absent and he, is, he doesn't see. God always see. Christ always see. And there's a day of justice that's coming where justice will be reigned and every sin will be dealt with. And don't miss this. That great and awesome day is coming when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for that day? Do you live today in light of that day? So you, I'm wondering if I were to ask you if you would believe it if I told you that he was coming back to judge. Because I'm telling you, just like the prophet Habakkuk told them, a day of justice is coming. Are you ready? And maybe you've misunderstood God's patience with you in your sin as his absence. In other words, God has been super patient. He sent disciples. He sent people to confront you with the ways that you've sinned against others. And you've rejected it and you refuse to repent. And you've thought, you know what? God's not going to do anything, but he's been doing something. He's been loving you and being patient and drawing you and wooing you to himself. And you've rejected it. And maybe the day is the day that you stop rejecting it. Maybe the day is the day when you realize this is the patience and kindness of God, and he longs to lead me to turn from sin towards faithful trust in him and obedience. So brother and sister in Christ, let me just encourage you this morning. I don't know what it is that's in your life that maybe the Lord might be convicting of you. Maybe it's uh, an addiction to pornography. 
Maybe it's being harsh with your wife or your kids. Maybe it's a friendship that's broken that needs to be fixed and it's because you have not pursued reconciliation. Maybe you have short-temperedness or a lack of faith. You're greedy. Maybe you're not loving your local church faithfully. And, 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 and maybe it's that today you are not loving Christ and his people. It could be any kind of thing, number of things. Today is a day that we need to turn to Christ in light of that great coming day and repent and trust him for forgiveness. It seems Judah had a parochial vision of their God and Habakkuk can't see God working amidst the injustice and some saw this as a license to sin. But notice that God's sovereignty extends beyond the gates of their home, beyond the doors of their homes, beyond the gates of their city, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Did you see that? You're struggling with sin in your private life, and he says, let me give you a big vision of God. I want you to look to the far reaches of the earth, to the peoples of the nations, and that is where my reign goes. It goes even beyond that. Notice the second interesting factor. He says this, second interesting factor, that God uses in in verse 6, the instrument of an unexpected, unjust superpower to bring about his just purposes. Listen again. God uses the instrument of an unexpected, unjust superpower to bring about his just purposes. They were unexpected, this people. The Chaldeans apparently came out of nowhere. The, the, this people of Aramean descent, they arrived in modern-day Iraq. They, they show up and, and, and they, they plant there. And they don't even like urban life. They gradually develop a military, almost accidentally it seems like. But a century later, under Nabopolassar, who founded the Chaldean dynasty in Babylon, they created the Neo-Babylonian Empire, a great nation that was a superpower. Seems to just have exploded out of nowhere. In fact, O. Palmer Robinson in his commentary says this about them. He says, who would believe that a virtually non-existent entity could conquer the old capital of Assyria in 614, Nineveh in 612, Haran in 610, and rout the armies of the Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish in 605? They became the world rulers over Babylonia, Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, when 20 years previously, they hardly were known to exist. So when God says, I'm going to show up and bring about an instrument of justice that you know not, it's because he was doing something that no one saw coming. Even more interesting, this people, as, as quickly as they arose, they, they fell. In fact, it seems to be around 70 years uh, before all of a sudden Cyrus of Persia is going to come in and conquer them in, in 539 B.C. But they were not only unexpected, they were unjust. You'll notice that God calls them bitter and hasty. In verse 6, that's how he describes them. They were bitter in the sense that they were not sweet or pleasant, right? It's not a good thing if, you know, you have a, a bitter wife, a bitter husband, a bitter child, a bitter lemon. Like, I mean, some people like lemons, but I think it's weird. Like, you, you don't usually eat bitter things. Like, you, you want something that is sweet, that's pleasant. It, it speaks of them causing pain wherever they went. They also were hasty or quick-tempered. A kind of capricious people. They, they didn't seem to make sense in the way that they uh, went about judging people and conquering people. In fact, as John Calvin writes in his commentary, he says, it was not by their own instinct, by the hidden impulse of God that nations rise and fall. 
seemed like this people raised themselves up, but God says, I raised them up. I think this is just a really good time to be reminded that God is sovereign over the nations. What nations? All of them, including this nation. And God is ultimately sovereign, working his will. Now, I'm not saying that we are a Christian nation. Like, please just hear me that. Like, if you, if you leave and you, like, tweet, pastor just said, we're a Christian nation. That's not what I'm saying. Some of you, like, tweet that like it's a good thing. Some of you would, like, judge me in that. I'm not even going there. I'm not here to take a political side or to argue that the election was rigged or fair, right? Either one. I'm not saying that. I'm not diving into the political conversation. I know that some of you would love that. I'm not doing that. I do believe it was fair. Please don't, like, email me about that. I'm also not here to say that you shouldn't be politically active or engaged. I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't vote, that you shouldn't, like, take active role in our country and in, in what we do and, and, and how we bring about justice and peace that we're able to under the sovereign rule of God. Is that clear? Like, that's not what I'm doing here? I mean, nobody's like, please just, like, I want to go home and know I'm not going to get a lot of emails, right? All right. See, I'm not calling Trump or Biden corrupt, neither of them. Just not doing that, not even going there. Are you all with me? Okay. But notice in, ver in this verse that God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans for my purposes. Do you all see that? I'm doing it. They are an instrument for my justice. I love the imagery that Isaiah uses the century before when he's warning Israel of Assyria and Isaiah 10, another superpower, the one that preceded Babylon, that Babylon would take over. And he says there to Israel, Assyria might be the ax that executes justice on my proud people, but I'm the lumberjack. Like they're an instrument and a tool in my shed to bring about my purposes, quoted by God. It's the same thing that he said in Egypt. I raised up the Pharaoh that I might show my power in him. So Proverbs 21.1 doesn't drop out of nowhere. Where we find in this book of wisdom, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. See, God showed this power over the heart of a king when he hardened the heart of Pharaoh, who also hardened his own heart. And God is sovereign over nations and sent his people into exile, bringing about justice. Now, of course, we are elect exiles in the New Testament. Do you remember that? You remember this judgment is that I'm going to send you into exile because of your unfaithfulness, Judah? Well, what's interesting is when you get to the New Testament, we are told that faithful Christians are called elect exiles. Just an interesting kind of turn in redemptive history as to what's going on. I love my country. I love my state. I love the United States and Arizona and Phoenix, but they are not my ultimate home. Do, do y'all understand? When you put your faith in Christ, your zip code changes on an ultimate way. You know what I'm saying? Like your home is now in heaven with God and he's coming to get you. His son's coming. And this world, as much as you love it, and as much as we are blessed to live in this nation, this is not our home and it might pass away. And catch this, if the United States passes away tomorrow, you know what changes about our ultimate hope? Nothing. We have the same promises. 
doesn't matter what earthly ruler is reigning over us. We have the same God who is working his same redemptive plan that he has been working from the beginning of time before the foundations of the world were laid. That's the world that we live in. Our God still reigns. You might be excited about how the election went yesterday. I hope this doesn't disappoint you. The same Lord still reigns today. You might be really discouraged today. You have the same news. You have the same God still reigning today, sovereign over the nations, sovereign over this nation. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, knew this well. He was a Roman and a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in Romans 13:1, he said this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for this is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by who? God. The vice regents of this world, they all ultimately one day will give an account to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And we will be elect exiles until Jesus returns to take us all the way home to the promised land, to the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise. Do you hear me? That's the promise. He's coming back for us to take us home, all the way home. Don't miss this. Exile is not the threat of covenant unfaithfulness for us, but the reality of faith in Christ. Do you get that? If you are faithful in Christ, then you get to become an exile. If you were faithless in Judah, well, then you have to become an exile. See, we're not promised heaven on earth until Jesus comes. Utopia will not be here. If this is your best life, then your future is not good. Because the promise of the Bible is that your best life is not now, but yet to come. And that this is the basement, not the ceiling of what God has for you. See, the United States could pass away like Assyria and Babylon before us, and that would be tragic, but our hope is in the kingdom of God and is by no means diminished by what happens here on earth. So catch this. Our hope is not ultimately in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And we don't fear that either Democrats or Republican parties can rob us of the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven. Now, maybe this election has caused you too much joy, and maybe it has caused you too much sorrow. I think there are a lot of people between those spaces, right? Too happy, too sad. But it's shown you, maybe this election has, that your confidence needs to be more in Christ than earthly kings. Maybe your tears need to hear the balm of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ's return. Now, I've spent too much time here, but what's more mysterious here, notice, is the way God uses unjust people to bring about his just purposes. So it's not just that God is over sovereigns, but notice here that he's using unjust people for his purposes. Take note of how the Babylonians are characterized. He says, and this is my third point, they are godless men executing God's justice on God's people. Godless men executing God's justice on God's people. We see that in verses 7 to 11. Now you'll remember that Habakkuk lamented to God that justice was perverted in Judah. Brother did violence against brother. And God's judgment against Judah looks like Judah's character at this point in 7-11. It's a kind of reversal of the fortunes of these oppressors. Those who dealt out violence will receive violence. They receive what they are owed. It is a just recompense for what they have done. But throughout, as we read these verses, you'll, you'll notice that there's this strange mixture that's going on. And maybe you noticed it when we read it before. There's this this mixture of God's purposes working to vindicate his glory and the glory of his justice. But simultaneously, it's happening 
through a people who experientially seek their own glory without reference to God. Did you see those two things happening side by side? They are proud. God is working his purposes. It's self-interest and yet God bringing about his glory. Notice what happens as we go through. Look at verses 7 to 8. Here's what it says. It says, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Now, notice first here in verses 7 to 8, they are proud, autonomous, and doing everything according to God's plan. Just an interesting combination of ideas. You might not see it immediately, uh, but you do notice that they are dreaded and fearsome in verse 7. Now, the dreaded, of course, is, is bringing terror upon others, uh, but they are also fearsome. Now, it's used here as a, an adjective. It's a unique adjective that speaks of the awe-inspiring character of an army with banners coming towards you, like the opposition's army. But as a noun, it describes all kinds of things. And our kids come in close, you'll like this. Uh, it's a kind of fearsome fear or terror that you would get at the sight of the barred teeth of a crocodile, right? You get close to a crocodile, kids, close enough to see his teeth, you're too close, you're in danger. Or what about the snort of a war horse in Job 39, 20? The intimidating sort of, can y'all make a, a horse snort, anybody? Kids, what does a horse snort sound like? All right, I feel very safe right now. Like, I don't know, something like that, right? Is that pretty good? That might seem funny to us, but if you hear a lot of that coming from an enemy that you know wants to kill you, it's terrifying. Add to that, you're trying to protect your family. It's terrifying. It's the word also used in Genesis 15, 12 for the presence of God. To fear and respect God. And so there's a sense in which you might even get a hint that these are actually great and powerful men who cause fear, but a fear that ultimately comes from the Lord, though not seen directly here. Yet they create their own justice without reference to God. Did you catch that? Their, their justice and dignity, they go forth from themselves. They look a lot like Judah in that the Torah or law does not define justice for them. They don't look to heaven for God's rule and reign. They're looking for, for it from themselves. They define justice themselves. They also seek dignity and honor apart from their creator. They look to exalt themselves. Now, that's always a problem. Human life loses ground of dignity apart from the faith in the God of the Bible who has revealed himself as our good creator who created us in his image and after his likeness so that we might reign with him here on earth. We're called to multiply and fill the earth as a creation displaying his good character to all for his glory. And if we separate ourselves from that, from that dignity from God, and we start to try to create for ourselves meaning apart from him, what we find is human dignity begins to disappear. We begin not to see babies as created in the image of God. We begin not to see older people as worthy of more than euthanasia. But do you see how they view reality? They are autonomous and self-sufficient. I mean, apparently, post-modernity isn't new. 
You know what post-modernity is? It's this idea that there really isn't objective truth. Why? Because there's not like a God, their perspective, not mine, right? I'm a preacher. But they, they view that, that this reality that we live in is actually a place where we each individually create truth for ourselves. And your truth is just as true as my truth. And the only law that we have is that you can't not accept or receive my truth, even if it's the opposite of your truth. Now, this is what inspired D.A. Carson to write his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance. The only thing that an, a tolerant nation or people are intolerant about is you saying that you won't receive my truth. And it pervades our culture today. This people are just like the people of today in this sense. They are also proud and powerful in verse 8. Their horses look otherworldly. Now, you would think that horses were intimidating enough, but these aren't your normal horses. These are leopard and wolf-like horses, right? And it's, intense, it's sort of intensifying the power of these beasts. They look otherworldly. They, they, they snort, A snort that would look fearsome to Judah, but these horses have the speed of a leopard, faster than your normal horses. And they're relentless in their appetites like wolves. They devour you before your body even uh, can be taken up to be buried. Horsemen are one with their horses as they press proudly on. Did you catch that? They are self-confident, not God-reliant, even though God has raised them up. Now, on the street level of their experience, they are motivated by the free pursuit of selfish gain. And yet, God says they are merely actors in God's grand story of redemption and instruments used by God to bring curses upon his people for breaking his covenant. You might be saying, where do you see that in these verses? Well, Deuteronomy 28.49 is being appealed to. It's there that God said that he would bring an enemy from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down. And here we find that Babylon is God's war eagle who has come to bring justice against his unjust people. They are fulfilling what God has promised to bring about. In verse 9, notice they're also violent, unflinching, and reversing the blessing of Abraham. They all come for violence in verse 9. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. Now, you'll remember that God promised Abraham offspring as numerous as the sands of the seashore. Yet here, Babylon will take the promised offspring of Abraham into exile. You'll notice that they are unflinching with their faces forward. They are not people to be reckoned with, and they are violent. They look so much like what what was seen by Habakkuk when he was looking out on the people of Judah saying, it's a violent people. Violence is everywhere. Now the violence has come upon them. Uh, notice in verses, uh, verse 10 that they mock the rulers of the earth. It says, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. See, God created this people to multiply and fill the earth with his glory. Yet, This nation mocks the kings of the earth and takes the literal earth they were to have dominion over, and Judah is included in this. They get swept up into God's judgment on the earth. They look like the other peoples of the earth. You're almost fearful that that God is not going to keep his promises to Judah in this grand work of of dealing with God's, uh, these people's injustice and bringing about his judgment. 
In fact, verse 11, notice what he says of these people. They are guilty and their power is their God. See, it says that then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their judgment is pervasive. It's pervasive. It, It sweeps across the whole earth. They show no reverence for God's law, his Torah. They exalt themselves. They are violent. They are guilty. Also, they might look like atheists, but they do believe in God. They worship their own strength. Yet God raised this people who look this way, who were undoing all of these things that seemed to have been pro- that were promised to the people of God. It seems almost like it's a cursed reverse of the promises of the covenant. They stand guilty even as God uses them as instruments of his justice. They are atheists, even as God uses them as an instrument of his divine judgment against his covenant people. As you look at this, what's fascinating is they have no awareness of the way that God is using them. Now, you might ask how this brings comfort. (laughs) Well, I've got a few ways. Uh, Hopefully, you have a, a good community group where you can talk about these things this week. But let me give you a few ways as we close. First, let me offer one clarification. God is sovereign over good and evil, but not in the same way. God is is sovereign over good and evil, but not over the same way. Now, this, this justice that's coming upon Judah is actually a good thing. But it is a bad experience for the people of Judah. And you'll notice that it seems like even this remnant who has been righteous is in danger of getting swept up in this justice that's coming. But we need to be reminded God is... Sovereign over good and evil, but not in the same way. We might begin to think that God is just willy-nilly doing good here and evil there. As D.A. Carson writes in A Sovereign and Personal God, he says this, and I think it's helpful. He says, the Bible insists God is sovereign. So sovereign that nothing takes place in the universe that can escape the outermost boundary of his control. Yet the Bible insists that God is good unreservedly good and very standard of goodness. We are driven to conclude that God does not stand behind good and evil in exactly the same way. In other words, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. He stands behind good in such a way that good can ultimately be credited to him. He stands behind evil in such a way that what is evil is inevitably credited to secondary agents like Babylon and all their malignant effects. They cannot escape his sway in exactly the same way that Satan has no power over Job without God's sanction. Yet God remains mysteriously distant from the evil itself. And just, just clarification, God is not behind good and evil the same way, but he's still sovereign. He's still absolutely sovereign over all things. There's no thing that out, sort of outruns uh, his coverage. Second, God promises in Romans 8 that all things work together for the good of the Christian. All things. We'll quote that verse a lot because we need to be reminded a lot in a broken world that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is not less present or sovereign amidst the tragedies of this life than he is in your victories. Do do y'all hear that? When he says all things work together for the good of his people, 
He means at least the bad stuff, because I'm sure most of us, by default, when good things happen, think, thank you, Lord, every good gift comes from you. We must be good. I must be good. What did I do to deserve this? Sort of a natural response. I'm not saying it's completely godly, but that's kind of our response. It's in those times when we are suffering in ways that don't make sense that we start to ask questions like, how long? God, I don't deserve this. Do I deserve this? Is there some unconfessed sin that I'm trying to find that you see that I don't see that if I got rid of that you would forgive me and that you would relent? It's in those moments that we start to ask, God, why this? How this? Is there purpose behind this? And it's in those moments that we need to be reminded, yeah, all things, even those things. All things work together for the good of those who love God. See, God is not less present or sovereign amidst the tragedies of his life than he is in our victories. God is always at work in all things for his people. In fact, William Kuyper writes this in his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. It's by what you see, how you feel, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Christian, that's you today. If you are in Christ, whatever cloud of providence is invading your life, you need to know that if you were able to see behind it to the face of God, your invisible God looking upon you, you would know that it is a smile that is for your good, for his glory, and for your future. He works everything for your ultimate good, and nothing can separate you from his love. Those are good statements, aren't they? Romans 8. He works everything for your good and nothing can remove you from his love also for non-christians as we get ready to go know that today is the opportunity for you to put your faith in christ and be saved from the coming judgment that comes with the return of jesus christ when jesus comes we are told that he is coming on a war horse to bring about god's justice on earth the justice that we need that we long for and God has raised up one better than the Babylonians for your salvation. You remember? I raised up the Babylonians to bring about justice. I've got a greater one who I'm going to raise up who is the opposite. He's not like them. He's better than them. In fact, in Acts 13, Paul preaches this one whom God raised up. He's preaching to some Jews in Antioch, some more Jews, like the ones in Judah, you know, 500 years later. Those who had heard the scriptures, had read Habakkuk, probably memorized it, and twice, as he's speaking in Acts 13, he speaks of Jesus as the one whom God raised up from the dead. In fact, in the original language, in the Greek version of Habakkuk, the same word for how God raised up the Babylonians is the word that's used for how God raised up Jesus from the dead. Here we find that God had raised up Babylon as an instrument of deliverance and justice Unlike Babylon, though, Jesus was guiltless. In fact, Acts 13 talks about this. He was not guilty. He was guiltless. And he came to bring glory to the Father, not to himself, but to the Father. And he was not proud. We find in these verses that he humbled himself by obeying God in every way. None of us have obeyed God in every way. All of us are guilty. But Jesus, Jesus was not guilty. He was innocent. He obeyed him in every way, even to the point of being killed unjustly. The most unjust thing humanity's ever done was kill the Son of God. And he died that death on a cursed tree. Acts 13, 30, Paul says, God raised him up from the dead. And God brought this good news to Jewish leaders through Paul, who preached forgiveness of sins. 
And in verse 41, Paul actually quotes Habakkuk 1.5. And he says, I'm warning you Jews. I'm warning you as you hear this, as you hear the gospel. The same warning that was given to Judah during Habakkuk's day in 1.5. He said, look you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work that you will not believe even if someone tells you. And I'm telling you, will you believe? And when the Jews rejected the word, Paul and Barnabas concludes in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Did you catch that? You rejected the gospel and in doing so, judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're gonna go tell the Gentiles about Jesus. See, the Gentiles believed when they heard just verses later and they rejoiced. These Jews rejected it. They judged themselves. The Gentiles rejoiced and were saved. See, God's justice is coming from heaven on the last day. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of salvation and deliverance in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. If you've not put your faith in Christ, do it today. You're not promised another day. If you are in Christ, Jesus is justice for you. But if you are not, you will be left to face God's wrath forever by yourself. But you don't have to. Put your faith in Christ today. Talk to me before you leave. I'd love to share with you about how Jesus can become salvation for you. Let's pray.